Welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Prolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space at my website, nicholascrolak.com or on Instagram at Nicholas underscore Crowley. I'd like to start this episode off with a big thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. The last I checked, there are over 1,300 of you, which seems absolutely crazy, humbling, and inspiring. I did not expect this project to grow so quickly or enthusiastically, but your response has been overwhelming, and I thank you for it. As more of you have been subscribing to the podcast, I've been getting a lot of requests to put a few selected tracks of my guests' music in each episode. I love this idea, but the red tape concerning royalties is something I'm not prepared to deal with at the moment. So in the meantime, I created a Spotify playlist that is a curation of all the guests I've had on the show so far. It's called The Voice Equals Power Playlist. Check it out. Today's episode is brought to you by South Jazz Kitchen. I'm incredibly honored to have one of the premier jazz clubs in the world supporting this podcast. I've been to South countless times, both as a performer and as an audience member, and I've always left elevated, inspired, and grateful such a place exists right here in Philadelphia. Aside from the world-class talent they book, and aside from the amazing food they serve, my favorite aspect of the space It's the dedicated listening room. I appreciate this so much, both as a musician and a listener. And I know you will too. So if you haven't, please check them out. 600 North Broad Street. I guarantee you'll dig it. My guest today is bassist Gerald Veasley. Native to Philadelphia, Gerald has brought his six-string bass all over the world, performing with Grover Washington Jr., Joe Zawinall, McCoy Tyner, and Odin Pope, to name a few. I've gotten to know Gerald through his work as president of Jazz Philadelphia, a nonprofit seeking to strengthen and elevate the jazz ecosystem in our city. Although this is a conversation between two bassists, we don't actually talk about bass that much. Most of the conversation centers around one of my favorite topics, the art of learning which is a common theme whenever Gerald and I get a chance to speak. All right, Gerald Veasley, <laughs> thanks for hanging out with me. I really appreciate you making the time to be on the show. Yeah. Um, I wanted to s- start this interview off with not the story of how we met, mm-hmm. but my first interaction with you even though you had no idea about it 
I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I had just moved to Philadelphia for a little bit, and I got an opportunity to play with uh, this singer uh, and go on tour with her and all this stuff. And it was like a, a big a big deal for me. Um, it was a very like R&B, neo-soul type gig. And she had approached me and uh, heard me playing upright bass, which is my primary instru- instrument. And she asked me, you sound great, do you play electric? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> Even though I did not. <laughs> and um, before the first rehearsal for a very big show at World Cafe Live, mm-hmm. I was scrambling to learn how to play electric kind mm-hmm. of efficiently because I really didn't didn't know much about it. Okay. And I was recommended to get a book not sure exactly what the I want to say it's uh, Standing in the Shadows of Motown yeah, the James Jamerson yeah. book yeah and you are featured on there mm-hmm. playing a couple tracks of, of uh, James Jamerson transcriptions right. um, the one I recall working on a lot uh, was was Darling Deer Darling Deer yeah that's yeah. one of those classic performances by Jameson. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> That's I, not a bad introduction to play electric bass flying. Yeah. Man. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I don't think I ever got all of it or all of it at tempo. But uh, playing all those transcriptions, and first of all, it really helped my reading. Yeah. Um, especially with 16th note. Yep. Um, and... Uh, I w- went through and read all the bios of all the, all the bass players, and mm-hmm. there you were. And uh, so that was my introduction to you. Well, and uh, and thank you for that because that really helped me get through that <laughs> gig. <laughs> and I, I learned a lot about electric bass uh, yeah. while playing in that band mm-hmm. uh, for about a year or so. And um, I just wanted to ask you, how did that project come about, mm-hmm. and wh- what was that like working on that? Yeah, so uh, the author of the book was a good, is a good friend of mine, um, Alan Slutsky. And Alan has been really well known for doing transcriptions of, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, pop bands, rock bands, like he created these whole folios for um, Hal Leonard. Um, and then we worked on a project together and... He said something we were doing some some kind of Motown song, and I said, "Do you know about James Jamerson?" He said, "No." Uh, I said, "Well, that's the person who's playing all these bass lines." And Alan is one of those intense guys. Mm-hmm. Like if you tell him to check out X, he's going to do it X to the <laughs> tenth power. Yeah, he goes knee deep in. So he just became really fascinated with the life and the music of James Jamerson. He went out to to Detroit. He got to know the family. He went out to the studio where um, the Funk Brothers recorded all that great music, and he decided to create this book, which would be a transcription of all these um, fascinating and really uh, important uh, pieces. That if you're just a listener of Motown, you kind of let it wash over you. Mm-hmm. So you hear uh, songs like, um, well, like Darling Dear or Heard It Through the Grapevine, but there are I don't know how many of these legendary songs where if you listen really closely, the bass, James Jamison playing some amazing stuff. And what I got out of his playing was that, you know, first of all, those guys, the Funk Brothers, they were jazz players. Mm-hmm. 
So their, their feel was a little bit different than what was happening. Uh, they had the sophisticated way of playing what was, I guess you'd have to call it R&B with a kind of like a, a pop sentiment to it. But you, know, you listen to Jameson's parts, one of the things I'm sure you recognize is that when you're learning those parts, it's not like you, like, so the bass parts of that time were mostly pa pattern oriented, right? You, you get this little pattern and then you play it over the one chord then it goes to the four chord, right? Mm -hmm. So you just learn position playing. It's almost like a visual pattern on the bass. Well, Jameson, you couldn't do that. He had some parts like that, mm -hmm. but like some of those parts are like, they're like through composed, where no two measures are exactly alike. But he did it in such a way that it never feels, uh, always feels anchored. Mm -hmm. um, so now, the other thing, I don't know if you're familiar with this, the movie, I'm not. Yeah, so there was a movie that, you know, of course, Alan Selesky mm -hmm. always takes things to, to the 10th power. He decided that that would be a fascinating film just about these um, hit makers who were unknown. Everybody knows um, Smokey Robinson and Stevie Wonder and The Temptations, but you don't know the people like Jameson who were behind the scenes. They were playing on literally hundreds of hits. It's like a factory. Mm -hmm. um, so he decided to make a film of it. And the challenge, of course, was, well, how do I get the funding for that? So he, he asked, you know, Barry Gordy, asked, you know, different financiers, and he couldn't get it. And um, finally, the story goes, he stood out in his backyard and said, God, why do you have me do this? You know, just show me a sign. Maybe I should quit or should I keep going? And he got on a flight to L.A., and he's sitting next to a guy who's reading standing in the shadows of Motown, his wow. book. Yeah. And he said, this is amazing, like, what, like, this is my book. He said, really? He said, so he asked the guy, he said, what do you do? He said, well, until recently, I was one of the early investors of, I think it was AOL. Mm. <laughs> he said, he told him about his quest to do this movie, and he said, maybe I can help. The most wow. beautiful words in the English language, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> And they got that documentary made, and it's a it's really a compelling story about these guys who, you know, as a bass player, we know that often you labor behind the scenes, but without the bass, you, you're missing a big part of the music. Yeah, does it, is that the same title? Same, same title, yeah. yeah. Very cool, I will definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. That sounds really cool. I remember seeing some clips of, maybe it was from that, but some clips online of Jamerson playing with his with his one finger one finger that's so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah you can't oh. imagine because it's his facility I mean he's so yeah. quick and it's but the one thing about the one finger that I noticed is it makes your sound really even yeah right the 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 tone of it as well as the dynamics of it are can be perfect <laughs> yeah absolutely I actually yeah. have a um, a an electric bass, uh, a <clears throat> 70, I don't want to say it's 71 or 73 Tele bass, uh, which is like different than Jamerson's bass, right. but it, it kind of gets a, a similar tone, mm. and that thing is so hard to play. It yeah. weighs a ton, and I, I, I don't know how he got that, that sound and that facility out of that instrument. I don't know either. The other thing about Jameson is that 
he was notorious for not changing his strings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, he would just have the same gunky strings on for <laughs> literally years, I think, till some producer said, you know, we can't tell if that's an E-flat or an E. You should really <laughs> change those strings. It's funny you mentioned Telecaster bass. That was my first good bass. Oh, wow. That um, I asked for and got. And uh, the weird thing about that bass is that, as you know, Nobody was really playing the Telecaster bass. It mm-hmm. was either a, if you were bringing, if you're going to buy a Fender, it was a Precision in those mm-hmm. days, and when I was uh, starting in the '60s, late '60s, it, or um, or a jazz bass like, a little bit later. Um, but the reason I bought my bass was because I saw Verdine White, mm. <laughs> and I was like, I want to do that. That is incredible. He's this amazing showman. And, the grooves are so amazing. Brittany White with Earth, Wind, and Fire. And uh, I got my bass. <clears throat> and the rude awakening was I didn't realize that nobody in the universe was really playing <laughs> the Fender Telecaster bass. I mean, in the in the world of music where I, that I really liked, which was the R&B and, and soul and, and later jazz. Uh, but yeah, it's fascinating how we get inspired by these other bass players and make decisions that... <laughs> are really pretty important decisions but it's it's the appeal of that person you see doing that thing absolutely mm-hmm. there's a, a a book i read called the the talent code mm. which breaks down the learning process on a um, molecular level really all the mm. way down to the molecular le- molecular level mm. how it works in the brain physically and then also branches out to a cultural level and a big part of that is uh, what he calls ignition mm. which uh, comes from that where people see some inspiring act or person and that's the catalyst for the I'm going for this X, XYZ whatever it is and because it requires a lot of energy to learn a skill and you need that that constant energy revitalization to continue with it because it takes years to develop totally i totally get that and in this book the author uh, travels to what he calls talent hotbeds which are areas that are usually very small and very remote Mm. and they produce a outsized um, amount of talent for example uh, there's like a town in 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 Russia that there's this small tennis club with one court produced more top 20 female players than the United States did. Whoa. Wow. You know, and there, it, it's basically, if you look at it, it looks like, like a shanty town, mm-hmm. but the, the level of everything is way up. And he went all over the world looking at the places like this mm-hmm. to find the similarities. And it's very, very fascinating book. So the question is then, can you can you intentionally create these spaces? He he, I would say the author would say yeah, mm-hmm. you can. And here are the components. The whole book mm-hmm. is breaking it down, mm-hmm. and there being th- uh, three components: one being ignition, mm-hmm. one being master coaching, mm-hmm. which comes in in a vari- variety of forms. And uh, the third was uh, producing um, uh, myelinating uh, 
structures in the brain through through repetition and very slow, deliberate practice. I would say he, that you could create that. Interesting. Yeah, and creating like a, a culture that mm-hmm. in the place that uh, has the proper carrots and sticks. Right. It's a big part of it. And in the arts, often we're missing the carrots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sticks, not too many carrots. Yeah. But you know, we, uh, so we have this program called Base Boot Camp we've been doing for about, almost going on 18 years. And uh, it was founded on the idea that all musicians, and especially bass playing, because bass players, because that's what I know, hit a plateau. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the question is, if you've had the initiation, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've, you've become super excited about starting this path of learning an instrument like the bass, and it's rewarding. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you get to a point where you don't see any progress. Yes. And that's the part where people quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the idea was to create this kind of intense weekend where you have all these musicians coming together, different ages, different backgrounds, different styles of music. And then just encourage one another to either keep going or to start over, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of break that um, plateau. And I think I, it came out of my own sense of that as a player coming up and, and trying to develop and get better. Especially in my 20s, you know, you reach a point, or I reached a point where I didn't really see the progress. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't know if there's something that's the initiation can be problematic in this way. I saw when I heard Jacoba's stories for the first time. <laughs> I took that Fender Telecaster bass that I told you about yeah. and sent it the way to have the frets ripped out, <laughs> thinking I would then sound like Jacoba's stories, and of course I didn't, and then I got frustrated and mm-hmm. didn't touch a fretless again for years. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things you have to be careful about is comparing yourself to others as you're looking for, as you get excited about these models, mm-hmm. and that's where I think the coaching aspect comes in where someone can say, look, there's a long path here, and you're going to make some incremental progress right here for where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to the base boot camp, one of the things about it is, one of the other principles that I understand is that um, it's hard to measure your own progress, and that also is something that leads to frustration. Mm-hmm. For example, when you get a base for the first day, like I did, Right, mm-hmm. and you sit down and you noodle around, right, and all of a sudden you're playing something that sounds like music. It's like wow. And if somebody shows you something, a pattern, a bass line, two or three notes, in the bass world, depending on the style of music, that often can be an essential part of a song. So you go from knowing nothing, virtually nothing, about bass playing, to something, and that something is huge you could play a song or component or bass line of a song. It doesn't get that good ever again. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh-huh. All the rest of our progress is incremental. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're getting, now you learn a scale, and then you learn another scale, and then you figure out how to apply it, and then you learn more complicated songs, and you learn to improvise, and you get these kind of big bumps, mm-hmm. right, and your increase of knowledge or your, you know, your, your baseline goes up, but then eventually it levels out, and um, I think there is something about the bright and shiny part about learning, the excitement of going from zero to full, like, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, but then the question is, how do you stay on that path when it's not bright and shiny anymore? Absolutely. Right? And so um, that's something I became fascinated about in terms of the camp and just inspiring people. It's like, okay, you're not going to see the progress. But the first thing is that you have to continue to practice, right? Mm -hmm. Because what will happen is, is like for Nick, who's practicing every day, right? You may not see that that one thing that you're practicing, you're getting infinitesimally, whatever that word is, mm -hmm. better <laughs> in, in really, really small, um, bite-sized ways you're getting better every day, but you won't see it. But then your bandmates or your friends, when they come hear you after a few months, say, man, you were killing me. You're like, what? Oh. That's a big thing that they that they talk about in that, mm -hmm. that book, The Talent Code, that effect where the person doesn't recognize how much um, progress they've made, right. but other people just go, whoa. That's right. And that's very, very common with uh, skill building. It's like you don't see the progress. You don't see the progress. It's, it's probably... In fact, if you're continually practicing, it's impossible to see the progress. Mm -hmm. Now, if you lay off <laughs> and then come back at it, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, like my forehand is okay, and then I don't do it for months, and I come back, and it sucks, but all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to practice like three hours a day. It's like, okay, now I see. I get that, that rush of like, well, man, I'm getting better. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, it's a fool's choice, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think, as a musician, it's, it's cool to be able to apply yourself daily. So one of the practices that I did was, I don't know how I decided to do this. Oh, I do know. So for teaching at UArts, University of the Arts, for a number of years, one of my go-to assignments was to have bass players, electric bass players, learn um, one of the Bach cello suites. Mm -hmm. Most people start with uh, the first cello suite in G. And then I realized I had to hold myself accountable and go back and learn them myself. And then playing the six-string bass, which has a wider range, I fell in love with the C major cello suite. Mm -hmm. Because it just uses so much uh, range of the instrument, and the more I got into it, the more I realized, man, this is really—it's number one, it's difficult to play it with beauty and to play it with good phrasing, and to get a tone out of an electric bass that sounds like something. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do this every day. I'll take one movement and just work on it. And that's been years now that I do that every day. Mm -hmm. The other thing about it is kind of it's it's also a signal to me that I'm in practice mode. Yeah. You know, that all right, now I'm practicing. No matter what else is happening, if I'm playing that, I'm practicing. And also what I'm tapping into is, is something that is timeless. Yeah. You know, there hasn't been, I don't know, I don't know a lot about classical music, but I don't know that there's ever been a more complete composer and to tap into that on whatever level, to do it every day, it's a pretty big carrot in yeah, a different way. Absolutely. It's kind of affirming uh, that you're touching, uh, tapping into something timely, something yeah. that's like that. I feel like almost every top-level bass player I know works on the Bach cello suites in some, some way. <laughs> like upright, electric, yeah. some of them bow it, some of them don't. 
there's something, something about Bach. And I actually, um, when I was studying with, with David Wong at, at Temple, uh-huh. he, he hit me to, uh, I think it was like a Percy Heath bass line. Mm. I can't remember which one. Maybe it was on, on like, on Olio. Mm. Uh, I think it was that one. But he, he was like, he's like, just listen to it. Just listen to it. Mm. Listen to it. And after a while, it starts to sound like he's playing a Bach thing because it's so logical. It's, so logical. it's just, I think that's real big. Uh, before we continue, I just want you to, uh, just about the bass boost, bo- bass boot camp. If anyone oh, in sure. the audience is interested, yep. where, when? Yep. So the base boot camp is held annually in Philadelphia. And uh, you can go for info, go to bassbootcamp.com, B-A-S-S-B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P.com. Um, one of the fascinating things about it is that we don't really have any prerequisites. You know, we have, we've had bass players who are teachers themselves who come and attend the camp because they also want to broaden their horizons or just get a kind of a kick start and we've had people that have almost literally picked up a base <laughs> on the way, there. way to, to the airport <laughs> yeah. and I think that a lot of that is me because I realize I'm addicted to those aha moments mm-hmm. right when you're a teacher and you show someone something their eyes light up that's our currency in, in a lot of ways yeah. when you're teaching someone and when you're teaching a beginner it's all aha moments <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so but you know um it's it's not just a teaching environment, but it's a community of, of people who they return year after year, and they're not just learning from me, but a, a faculty of people like great teachers like Adam Nitty and uh, Rob Smith, who's a, a local bass player here in the Philadelphia area, who's a fantastic mm-hmm. teacher, and then we'll have guest instructors come in. Um, last year, our our big uh, masterclass instructor was uh, Marcus Miller. We've had Stu Ham. Uh, who else we've had? Uh, a lot of my favorite guys, like Richard Bona has come. Mm-hmm. I love Richard. Yannick was Yannick uh, Wisdala. He's one of my favorite bass players too. And you know, we try to mix it up between players who are mostly known as jazz musicians and rock players, and you know, it's a, it's the whole gamut. But it's basebootcamp.com. is It's open to everyone, and it's uh, yeah, be part of this community. Very cool. Um, going back to the the plateau, mm-hmm. a thing I've noticed about the plateau, because I've experienced many of them, <laughs> uh, I feel like right before you notch up to a next thing, mm. there's a dip or a perceived dip mm. where it gets real frustrating. Yes. Because you, I, for me, I start to feel like I'm reg- regressing in some way, like I'm getting worse. Yes. But I, after years of dealing with it, I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think what's happening is I'm getting, my ears are hearing something bigger. Yes. But I can't do it yet. Yes. So I'm, it's not sounding great. Right. But it's, it's, it's the, like the kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel, the not the end of the tunnel, but just mm-hmm. that resistance before getting to that next that next thing. Yep, I totally identify with that. And yeah. I, I think part of it is that um, 
again, that self-perception that you alluded to, you, you can't tell what's really happening, what kind of progress you... And first of all, it's subjective. Mm -hmm. It's not like other things where you say, well, man, I was, you know, whatever. I could lift 100 pounds, and I can lift, lift 110 pounds. It's like, okay, there's a clear indication, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or I can only lift 90 pounds. But I think the um, with music, there's something else that's going on. First of all... Um, Comparison is a very difficult aspect to this, right? Mm -hmm. um, I always say that um, adult learners, people who have the difficult time in learning, one of the ways that it's difficult for adults rather than kids is because our tastes are too discriminating, mm -hmm. right? We know what sounds good and what sounds bad, and that can be frustrating. Like when you were a kid, I don't know what age you were when you started playing bass. I started kind of, I started kind of late. I started around probably like 18 or 19. Okay, good. Yeah. But if you had started when you were eight, yeah, you would have known the difference between a good bass line and a bad bass line, between being out of tune and out of tune, mm -hmm. right? And there's something valuable in not having that discrimination to me because as you're refining your playing, you're not critiquing in the same way, yeah. right? Because that also can be, um, that can limit us. So I have this theory, it's never been tested, but if they passed a law that said you couldn't start playing the violin until 20, there'd be no violinists. <laughs> because the violin would sound so bad that yeah. everybody would quit. Yeah. <laughs> or the trumpet. Yeah. There'd be no trumpet players. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know... <laughs> Right? Yeah. I think being a kid, there's something liberating about not knowing what that light at the, light at the end of the tunnel is, right? Yeah. So it sounds like what you've had to do is have trust in yourself yeah. that if I stay with this, it'll get better, even though right now it doesn't sound better or feel better or look better. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate with yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me a lot of... Um there's there's a, another book that I'm really into called that I listen to on the on the audiobook pretty much every day. It's called the the War of Art. Mm. It's about dealing with uh, internal um, blocks and internal. Um, he refers to it as resistance. Mm. The author Stephen Pressfield, and a, a big tenet of it is that the closer you are to your goal, mm. the more pushback you're going to get internally. Wow, 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 wow. So if you're feeling a lot of pushback or anxiety or uh, self-doubt, it means you're close. Wow. And uh, that that reinforced what kind of this, some of the things I've been through. Of just like, I can't do this. It would have been real easy to quit, yes. you know, many times. Yes. And for, I don't really know why, some reason, push through it and then you know, a week or two later like, ah, okay. It's not so bad. Or, oh well that's pretty good or whatever. Yeah. You know, I worked with Odin Pope for a number of years. Mm -hmm. He's a you know brilliant saxophonist. Mm -hmm. And we had this group that was a trio that was led by him. We were playing his music and it was just bass drums and saxophone, which was you talk about something liberating mm -hmm. as a bass player. Now you have all this harmonic room to do all sorts of things. Um but it's in terms of improvisation, when I was in that group, um, 
you know, I really didn't have a, a system, you know, but I was learning a lot from being around him. Um, I hadn't really studied improv. A lot of it was self-taught. And I would get to these points where you talk about a plateau. I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you finish playing and you say, man, I just couldn't get anything happening. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't get anything happening. Like when you can't start the car, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Can't, uh -huh. can't get anything happening. And I remember telling him about that feeling. And his advice was so powerful. He said, just stay with it. Because if it's not happening, it will happen. Mm -hmm. So that trust that it will happen, it's, it's, I think it's powerful. And um, now in talking to you about this, I see a certain um, type of resilience in sometimes in, in being involved in an art like music mm -hmm. where you, you, can, you can feel the frustration in your bones and a limitation like hanging over you mm -hmm. and then you stay with it and you fight through and on the other side you see that you made a little progress mm -hmm. and if you get enough of those kind of victories then you really can trust that if it ain't happening it will happen well, yeah yeah absolutely um you mentioned coming at at jazz kind of later mm -hmm. can you describe your your uh, your kind of earlier uh, path? Sure. So um, my first teacher was a blues guitar player. And the way it went was um, when I got a bass for Christmas at the age of 12, one of the requirements was that I was going to have to study. And they were going to find me a teacher, and I'd have to learn. and they had been exposed to, my family kind of on the periphery of show business had seen musicians who were limited by not being able to read music and, and so on, so they wanted to make sure I could do those things. So they, they set up private lessons. But before that, they had this blind guitar player, I wish to God I knew his name, he would come over, and they would sit a bottle of whatever it was on the table, mm -hmm. gin or vodka, whatever his thing was of choice, <laughs> and that would be how they would pay for the lesson. And he would show me these blues riffs and um, you know that was really cool because again like I alluded to earlier you know the power of feeling like you're doing something that's not just a scale but sounds like something that is a song there's something really magical about that so that was my early exposure to music was really like in terms of playing it, it was blues and then R&B and then um, for some reason I always was attracted to playing with other musicians, like I love that part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was 13, I already had a band and we were playing, practicing and every day. I didn't know what rehearsal really was, but I knew like, let's get together and play. And so we mm -hmm. practiced like six days a week. Yeah. And then my taste would evolve based on who was in the band. You know, one of my, the first guitar players we had in the band, he loved Santana. Mm -hmm. So it's like, man, I love Santana. <laughs> Let's get a timbali player and a coca player in the yeah. band. And another, um, um, uh, later on we got another guitar player who loved, like, Deep Purple. Mm -hmm. Oh, those are cool riffs. Let's learn some of that. So we're playing Deep Purple and Cream and mm -hmm. all this kind of uh, classic rock stuff. Although at that time it wasn't classic, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was normal rock, yeah. <laughs> And uh, somewhere in my house, I discovered a jazz record. There was like... Do um, you remember what record it was? 
the first one I'm not sure, but there were a group of records which were it was pretty wide a pretty wide collection in terms of tastes like um, Ornette Cove and the Shape of, Shape of Things to Come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, um, uh, Shoot, I can't remember. There was um, there was a couple Jimmy Smith albums in there, and then there was um, a Day in the Life by Wes Montgomery. There were all these really beautiful records, um, and the one and I started learning some of the Wes Montgomery stuff on guitar as well as bass because the part I left out was that when I got my bass for Christmas, my cousin we grew up sort of as brother and sister. She had to get an instrument too because it was mm -hmm. only fair. So they got her a guitar, which she was interested in, not at all. Mm -hmm. So I <laughs> started playing the guitar a, a little bit as well. And so I was very interested in Wes Montgomery and, like, you know, that, that album, that Creed Taylor album, was very, you know, I don't want to say easy to get into, but it was very alluring, you know, very melodic, and you could. Again, if you could figure out how to play these octaves, you could sound like, man, I felt like Wes Montgomery. <laughs> I didn't sound like him at all. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of my entry point into what improvisation could be like, like what you could do with an instrument. And then what really hit, hit it home in terms of like being possibly a practitioner of jazz, not a, as a professional, but just like having a jazz-esque feeling of mm -hmm. playing music, was the album Bitches Brew. Mm -hmm. Right, because it kind of was the combination of everything that I knew or thought I knew so far about music. Like, okay, there are these interesting grooves, and it's like a, it's, it's, it was different than some of the other jazz, which was head soloist, another soloist, head, and then out. Mm -hmm. It was everybody. It was this collective feeling, and also this kind of rock sensibility. And these beautiful colors, these um, you know electronic colors, and s this palette that was not based on kind of a s standard chord progressions. So it was really an easy, not easy, but a welcoming entry point for me into really thinking about you know what it could be like to play jazz. Mm -hmm. That was probably the most profound influence on me. And then later on to hear bands that came out of that experience, right? The, the people that Miles Davis launched out of that record, you know, mm -hmm. the Chicory Return to Forever and Herbie Hancock Headhunters and, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Uh, then the, to me, the ultimate was Weather Report. Mm -hmm. That to me was just, I don't know why, that to me was like just the pinnacle of everything that could happen in music. Um, and then years later to come full circle and to spend time in Joe Zawinul, co-founder of Weather Report, in his band, post-Weather Report band, Zawinul Syndicate. I was in that band for seven and a half years. Wow. So in some ways, I mean, it was the pinnacle for me of like yeah. reaching what I thought um, was a, kind of the highest level of, mm -hmm. of musical experience. What, what, can you talk about that experience, uh, some of the specifics of it, or some of the things you learned from playing with Joe? Yeah, first of all, <laughs> um, I'm glad you focus in on the learning because the, I, I realized later on that learning is something that is the most appealing part of playing music mm -hmm. for me. 
when I feel like I'm learning, not learning, and feel like I'm not growing, I'm frustrated. But it took me years to understand like the source of the frustration. I thought the source of the frustration was that I wasn't playing well, or that it didn't sound good, or that people weren't responding, or that I wasn't creative. No, the biggest attractor for attractor for me is that sense that I'm learning, mm-hmm. that I'm getting something out of this experience, that I'm growing. Whatever it's firing up in this brain, that's what's pulling me in. So, you know, I called Joe Zawinul's group, the Zawinul Syndicate, the Traveling Conservatory, Mm -hmm. because there were opportunities to learn all the time, you know, just the way uh, he approached music. Um, First of all, as a composer, he had a really interesting way of composing, which was very organic. So what he would do, at least during that time, was he would have his keyboard set up all the time, and ready to record. So sometimes he'd just be scrolling through different sounds on the keyboard, just, you know, as you know, I mean, I don't think there's been a synthesis, a musician who has gotten so much out of the sounds of those instruments that he has. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible, the sonic landscape that he created um, in those records. But part of him searching for sounds and developing sounds, he would also be playing. Mm-hmm. And he would record whatever he played. And in those days it was cassette recordings. And at some point he realized that there was something valuable in those cassettes, not just in terms of identifying sounds, but in identifying songs. Mm-hmm. So he would send those to a copyist. And oh, the wow. copyist would sit down, <laughs> God bless whoever it was, yeah. <laughs> and transcribe these things. And when I was in the band in those first rehearsals, we would have these charts, it'd be 11, 14 pages wow. of just his stream of consciousness. Yeah. And the part of the, the, the um, rehearsal and composition process, or editing process, was culling mm-hmm. these compositions out of his stream of consciousness. So wow. you'd be playing, you start at page one, and then all of a sudden you get to page three. Okay, that sounds like something. Okay, so we start there, yeah. but, you know, measure 200. <laughs> Right? <laughs> That's going to be part of the thing. Yeah. And up to measure 246, whatever, okay. And the next thing, uh, maybe that could be an intro. And it was really fascinating. And what I learned from that was that, um, that there's something powerful in having a composition come out of what you're doing naturally, mm-hmm. as opposed to deciding, okay, today I'm composing. My pen is in my hand. Here's the manuscript paper, and now I'm going to come up with something really good yeah. <laughs> right for the world to hear <laughs> yeah. right now. Uh-huh. Uh, but instead, come at it from a different standpoint, which is I'm a musician, and I'm in touch with my instrument, and good things are again this trust factor. Good things mm-hmm. are going to happen when I'm just playing, because for someone like Zalimov, who had I don't know at that time. I don't know what age he was when he started, but um, you know, decades of musical experience in his bones mm-hmm. from working with Dinah Washington and Cannonball Adderley and Wayne Shorter and learning Bach and Brahms and Beethoven as a kid. And then mm-hmm. all of that is enmeshed together. So of course when he put his hands on the keyboard, even for that first note or that first chord, there's power and magic in that and mm-hmm. trusting that. And then as a band leader, that idea of trusting what happens naturally, um, that was sort of the ethos of the band too. 
So in other words, he had ideas about how he would like his music to be played and what he wanted the band to sound like, but also he would have this honor for what you brought to the table. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, if you were in the band like me, and he heard you playing something, it's like, Nick, what was that you were doing? He'd be like, I don't know, I was mm -hmm. just kind of fooling around. Do it again, I like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and take that thing that you do without thinking about it, in some way incorporate that yeah. in the in the band. So and it wasn't just musically. For for example, for me, um, I just enjoyed like telling stories and telling jokes. And sometimes he would use me to kind of talk to the audience. Mm -hmm. Talk to the audience, his audience. It yeah. wasn't my audience. Can yeah. you imagine? Now I'm just thinking about what an honor that was. It's yeah. almost like a preacher letting someone else get before his congregation uh -huh. and say something and hope you don't embarrass all of us and God. <laughs> so, uh, but that morphed into um, me writing um, little poems and reciting them as part of the musical performance. He had this one piece where he kind of recreated a uh, performance of Monk's Mood. And I came up with this story about how uh, Thelonious Monk was so misunderstood. And I created this character of someone who was really critical of Thelonious Monk, but yet really had never accomplished anything himself, but mm. was the ultimate critic. And it was a funny little story. And that became part of the, our, our performance. And it was like, I realized how important that was to, if you have a band, and Duke Ellington, of course, was, was a master of this, mm -hmm. of finding out what, what was essentially important about that person, what they could bring to yeah. enhance the over, overall uh, performance, as opposed to a plug and play. Yeah. I need a bass player, I need a saxophone, I need a guitar player, here's my music, sound yeah. like this. Sound like the last guy that was in that seat. Mm -hmm. Or else, really, I have no use for you. Yeah. <laughs> but he was always looking for what's special in you that's mm -hmm. going to enhance this whole thing. The other thing I'll say about that is that for seven and a half years, I was the greatest bass player in the world. I really was. I can say that with, with absolute um, authority that I was the greatest bass player in, for the, in the world for seven and a half years. You know why? Why is that? Because that's how he would introduce me every night. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Gerald Veasley. He's the greatest bass player in the world. <laughs> and, you know, and this is Mike Baker. He's the greatest drummer in the world. And, and through the line, and when the, when the players would change, they would still be the greatest <laughs> in the world. And, 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 and it's funny to think about, right? But I think, on several, number one, that's affirming, right? Yeah. It means that he has a respect and a love for what you have. And also it's saying that there's something about that that you, you can actually claim in terms of, okay, I know it's ridiculous to say I'm the greatest anything, but to say, this person respects me. Mm -hmm. I should have respect also for what I, what I have to offer. And also signaling to the audience that this is something really special. Yeah. That we didn't pick these musicians up at Kmart. They, <laughs> they, we, we got them in this <laughs> at Saks Fifth Avenue mm -hmm. for your pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and it and it creates this whole vibe from from everyone that this is going to be something really really special. And the other thing is <laughs> the other thing that was calculated by him is that. The mathematics of it really mm -hmm. makes sense, right? If Nick is the greatest bass player in the world, 
and John is the greatest drummer in the world, and uh, Danielle is the greatest pianist in the world. By default, this is the greatest band in the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the lessons were endless, and the, the ultimate irony is that I left Joe's band because I felt like I wasn't growing. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you learned in that particular band. You didn't learn um, directly. Like uh, um, like a few moments ago, you mentioned your teacher kind of instructing you to listen to a Percy Heath bass line, mm -hmm. and that out of that you would learn something. He didn't tell you what, mm -hmm. but he told you what to listen for. And often we're looking for that kind of, I'm looking for that kind of direct instruction. So I look over to Joe like, wow, that chord progression, what were you thinking there? Or what is that chord? It doesn't look, it, you know, what is that? What are you thinking? Nothing. Mm -hmm. ah, I don't know. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, just real, ah, uh, I don't think like that. And in a way, he did, you know, he never presented us with a group of chord changes in a traditional jazz sense, like where you would look at. C major seven <laughs> to F major seven to D minor not no none of that to him when he puts his hands on the keys and I know he has a knew he had a deep understanding of harmony but for masters like that it gets beyond mm -hmm. the structure right it's almost like the structure is an overlay to help us understand this really magical universe right mm -hmm. it's like to help us interpret this. It's really, and it really is magic. But I wanted that key to unlock what the magic is so I could have my own. And he, he didn't have that to offer. Mm -hmm. So then what happened was, and we left on extremely good terms. A lot of times people left the band. Uh, it was, you know, I wouldn't say traumatic, but it would be like, you know, not on good terms. Mm -hmm. We had a, a tour coming up in the fall, and we were finishing up or we were starting the summer tour and I already told him I'm not going to be with you on this on the fall tour now that's really I think important for musicians uh, I don't even know if I recommend it to everyone people have different ways of conducting their business but I always had this sense of an ethical responsibility to not leave people hanging mm -hmm. and even if it's going to cost me a little bit you know if I can't ride two horses at once that I have to make a decision, that you, you communicate with a person, to the person, especially if it's someone you respect. So I told him that, and he said, yeah, I, I could see that coming. It's time for you to do your own thing. That's good. I appreciate that. But you know what? We'll always work together in some way. So then I learned something from that, too. Mm -hmm. That even though I said I was moving on, he left the door open mm -hmm. for continued collaboration, whatever that may look like. That was very affirming to me as a young musician. Mm -hmm. um, but then the part that was very weird and unsettling was then after I left the band, where I played with someone who really was, and I don't want to use this word gratuitously, but a genius. Someone who truly was a genius. We don't have a lot of them mm -hmm. in music. Although he would, again, he would call all of us geniuses because he would <laughs> recognize that little nugget of genius. But this is someone that could hear one wrong note in an 80-piece orchestra mm -hmm. and call it out. Where he could never, I never heard him stumble over a piece of music. And you could put anything in front of him, he could read it. And he could come up with compositions that let it last to this day where you say, like a remark you made, how do you come up with that? Mm -hmm. So really a genius. But then to leave that environment 
and then you look over, you're playing on the bandstand, you look over, and it's just piano player. It's not Joe Zavala. <laughs> you know, and, the, and to see, again, that comparison, to feel the loss, and then to understand, doggone it, I was learning all the time mm -hmm. in a more organic way. In term, as a bass player, to understanding the power of the bass, even in, 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 we would do reharmonizations on the fly, just from moving the bass, mm -hmm. moving the, uh, the bass notes around, all kinds of things that I was learning organically. Um, and then to now realize, okay, number one, it's the responsibility of the student to learn, not the teacher. Mm -hmm. It's 100%, especially as an adult, it's 100% of the, the adult learners, or for me, a musician of a band, to glean all you can. It's not the responsibility of the band leader to teach you. Mm -hmm. So you have to be completely open and grabbing at everything and, and go, and also take some ownership and some initiative to figure it out yourself and to continue to push yourself. And the other thing that I learned from that is that the generic piano player that I now had the disdain for because he wasn't Joe Zalolo. And I would be like heart sick going home like, dang, man, that was just horrible. Listen to those sounds. What was that? Those songs, the improv, well, that was terrible. To, to evolve from that to thinking, wow, okay, that person does have some, some nuggets of genius too mm -hmm. and respect it. And to listen more attentively to what everybody has to offer on the bandstand. Is there, hmm. so now that, how, how old were you uh, approximately in, the, in that, in that, yeah, in that period? Yeah, I was in my 30s. Yeah. In your 30s. Yeah. So what is a thing about the younger generation of players that are coming up that you are really impressed by? Hmm. Yeah, especially this crop of musicians. I'm, I'm impressed but that they're ready. They're willing to find their own voice and to break the mold. Uh, I think there's important importance in mold making mm -hmm. and mold following. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important that it should be ignored, but there's something also valuable in mold breaking yeah. and trying something different and uh, you know, breaking the rules. I'm very impressed with that. And, you know, people like, uh, and there's there also there's also there's always some sort of cultural touch point or something else that people are building on. So like Kamasi Washington, mm -hmm. there's. Did been, you see him at the Met? I did not. I was uh, I was out of town. I'm sorry. Did you go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, how was it? It was great. Yeah. See Kamasi and Herbie was. Oh was, man, so that's was, great. Was wild. So th that's a great example of you know Herbie, someone who, from where I sit, has always seemed to be open. Mm -hmm. to whatever the next thing is, the new thing. And, and But not be disdainful of what happened before, but have this kind of 360 degrees approach to, to all of it. That's my, I don't know him, mm -hmm. so that's my impression. Um, whereas, uh, you know, somebody like, like Kamasi, he comes along and there's a, there's a new tribe that loves what he does. Mm -hmm. And the old tribe is saying, well, wait a minute, that ain't really the real thing. It's like, well, how many times have we heard that? Yeah. 
<laughs> How many times have we heard that? I'm sure that when Stan gets, um, you know, may uh, introduce us to Bossa Nova, it's like, what's that? That ain't bebop. Mm -hmm. You know, it's we we keep having these kinds of uh, pushback against whatever someone else comes up with it else that's in, that includes other sounds and other approaches. Um, you know, we want the right vocabulary, we want the right instrument. I'm an electric bass player. Mm -hmm. That's what I've chosen to be. And I've been really grateful that people have been, you know, somewhat accepting of it, but I'm sure it's not universal. But I love the sound of my instrument. Mm -hmm. um, but yet, yeah, we have these kind of fences that we put around what is jazz and what is not jazz, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the part that I'm appreciative of the fence is that it's saying that jazz is so special that we don't want to let it just any old thing in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there's something good about that, the saying that it's making a claim that this is, this is art and that it's, we love it. And when the MJQ plays Django, there's something magical about it, and that is is worthy of respect. Or where, um, you know, when Charles Mingus plays Haitian fight song, we love it, and it's worthy of respect. And then when Kamasi Washington gets on st mm -hmm. stage with his afro, and there's there's big reverb, and there's these you know, mm -hmm. it's it's a different cultural touch point, but that is important. I think the importance is. Well, I don't know. I don't want to go too far afield. You got to pull me back, because sometimes being a, I guess a, a jazzy person in my thinking, I'm not a, a kind of as much of a linear thinker. So I have these ideas, and now the idea I'm having right now is that we can't have these discussions about being inclusive around things like migration to a country, mm -hmm. and be exclusive about migration into an art form. Wow. Yeah. Right, <laughs> there's Absolutely. something that's not cool about that. Yeah, right. But there's also something where you say, well, we respect that what we have is special, and that we want people to come in and honor it, and respect the rules and the laws of it. But we honor what you bring in. That's a little different. Mm -hmm. That you're bringing in a new spice. Yeah, absolutely. That we want to taste what you have, man. I think there's something where, as, as as jazz people, we should be appreciative of, this, of the other spice that comes in. Absolutely. Is there an instrument that is not the bass that you feel a particular uh, kinship with? Perhaps you like you really enjoy transcribing, or in another lifetime you would play. Hmm. That's a great question. So the guitar is my other kind of natural instrument, because mm -hmm. not only was my first teacher a uh, uh, inebriated guitar player, <laughs> <laughs> but my first formal teacher was also a guitar player who also taught bass. And in those days, the electric bass didn't really, it was just starting to develop its own uh, method of study and, and its own kind of understanding of what the bass role can be. So either your teacher was a converted upright player who was trying to 
figure out how to make it like a miniature upright bass mm -hmm. or acoustic bass. Or your teacher might be a guitar player who had this overgrown instrument, this kind of swollen guitar that they were trying to figure out what the methodology would be. So my teacher was, I wouldn't say, maybe that's too, too um, an exaggeration, but he was definitely a guitar player. Mm -hmm. So I started learning to play the bass with a pick. Mm -hmm. And my approach to playing um, fingerings was from his perspective as a guitar player. And my approach to playing bass lines, he was open to me learning chords on the bass. Mm -hmm. Nobody was teaching that. Um, so, and then also having a guitar and being and loving guitar music, I mean, to this day, I mean, I love flamenco. The, one of the first, as I indicated earlier, one of the first um, jazz musicians who I I fell in love with their sound was Wes Montgomery. So that's sort of my other instrument. Um, but if I could do it all over again, I would study the piano. Mm -hmm. I would really study the piano. There's something about the piano. And I know what it is about the piano. I, what is it? For years, I thought it was just that there were these other reasons about the piano being the complete instrument. Mm -hmm. Right, it's the composer's instrument. Uh, it's you understand theory and harmony in a very immediate way. Uh, you can play unaccompanied. There are all these kind of logical reasons that make the piano the ultimate instrument in some view and in my view. But there's something else personal that I didn't understand until recently. So, one of the first instrument I ever asked for, and I can remember asking for it at the age of four was a piano. Mm -hmm. I wanted a piano. Never got one. But my babysitter had a piano when I was coming up. And I would noodle around on the piano. Um, but one of the things that about my personal upbringing that was really interesting was that um, I was adopted. Now I didn't know I was adopted until I was 24 years old. I had kind of inklings of it, but when I had to get a passport, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have to have a birth certificate, now if my family said, well, there's something we have to tell you. <laughs> so that was interesting, because what I discovered was that my mother, who had come here, come from, Philip, from Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. the Pittsburgh area, to Philadelphia to have me, she came with the strict, strict instructions as an unwed, unwed mother and college student to not come home with a baby. So back then, what you did was you would go away and uh, you put a baby up for adoption, you have the baby, you go back home and continue your life. Um, so my mother was sitting on the steps in her, at her apartment in South Philadelphia, and my adopted mother was walking down the street and saw her and said, oh, you're having a baby, isn't that nice? And she explained to her her dilemma. My adopted mother said, well, I'll take him. Wow. That was the adoption. Wow. <laughs> so they became friends mm -hmm. and all through the adoption. And actually, after my mother gave birth to me, she actually stayed around for a while and they became friends. And then my aunt got into the picture and my mother got married, my adopted mother. And so the four of them, my biological mother, my adopted father, adopted mother, my adopted aunt, 
they be all became fast friends and they would go to club, clubs and take out jazz stuff and, and all of that. My mother went back to continue her life back in Pittsburgh. And so once I got news of this story, you know, I had this kind of yearning to want to know more about, you know, my biological mother. And I could never find any information. I knew her name. I knew where she was from, basically. But that was it. And early on, I would look in phone books. <laughs> you know, I would call, you know, call around. And then when the Internet came along, I would do these searches. But in some ways, honestly, they were half-hearted. Mm-hmm. Because there was a part of me that also didn't want to be rejected. You know, mm-hmm. So if I, if I call somebody that my mother's name was, Nora, um, was Rachel Martin, if, some, if I found a Rachel Martin in the phone book and I would call up and I would start whatever my little spiel would be and someone would hang up on me, it would like be like a dagger. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird to think about it now because they were just getting these strange phone calls from this weird person <laughs> saying, you're my mother. <laughs> so, um, I, again, I kind of gave up in a way. And then I, I joined Ancestry.com. Mm-hmm. And this is not a plug for Ancestry.com, but if you want to sponsor Nick's <laughs> podcast, he's not opposed. <laughs> I'll take any, any sponsorship. <laughs> so, um, so um, yeah, so one Mother's Day, um, and I would always get blue around Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. So one Mother's Day, um, I went, I logged on to Ancestry.com because I was going to cancel it. Because the one thing about that site is that when you're a member, it hits your account, every your bank account, like clockwork every yeah. month. And I said, man, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's really, actually, it's disappointment. Yeah. And so I logged on to cancel my subscription. And I heard a voice say, give it one more shot. Mm. And did a little more digging. And I found my mother's family's 1940 census record. And all the clues were there, all, all the things that my family had told me about her family, mm-hmm. her brother's name, um, her name, the area they were from. And then I knew my dad's name, and I found his family census record. Lo and behold, they lived on the same street. Mm. So what's the possibility? That has to be them. Yeah. Then, so then I start digging through all kinds of, I mean, so this is days, days now of like no sleep. I'm obsessed with this thing. And finally, I land on my mother's yearbook, her high school yearbook, because there are these sites where they digitize these yearbooks. Mm-hmm. And I'm scrolling through, you know, all the names and all these faces, and I get down to my mother's name and face, and I see my mother's face for the first time in my life. And I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm, right now I'm getting emotional thinking about it. My wife who walked in, walked in behind me, looked over my shoulder and saw she didn't even really know what was going on and she just screamed because the face of that young woman was my face. Mm-hmm. Even the way we, in her graduation photo, even the position she's holding her head is my, the position of my head. Mm-hmm. All the facial characteristics except this, the little baby hair that I was growing, mm-hmm. trying to grow up, <laughs> it was the same face. And so... I found my mother. Mm -hmm. And then under her name was a description of, you know, like, you know, Mm -hmm. most of your books, what they're interested in, this young woman. The first thing was music lover. Mm -hmm. 
Second thing, mentioned that she was um, very active in school as, you know, prom committee and National Honor Society and uh, the Latin Club and on and on and on, all these academic characteristics. But mixed in there was that she was a member of the choir and a member of a small choir, the octet, that she played the piano. Mm -hmm. She was a pianist. And so I was really like spellbound by this. Of course, now I've got this information. What do you do with this kind of information? What do you do? You go to Facebook. <laughs> and you've got names and you kind of configure. And I also looked at like, uh, you know, funeral records of different people in the family. And I sent what I hoped to be, now learning my lesson from having the phone hung up on me, mm-hmm. I sent what I thought were some innocuous inquiries to six people that I thought may answer. And the first person that I knew would answer my uh, message on Facebook was Gary. And I knew Gary would give me a response because in his profile photo, he was holding a bass. Mm-hmm. I said, man, we're going to be kindred spirits somehow. He's going to hear my plea. So, I, you know, he answers my message and his answer is, OMG, because I told him, you know, I'm Gerald Veasley, but my mother was Rachel Martin. You may help me with my, my personal history. If you want to contact me, blah, blah, blah. OMG. Then his next sentence, sentence was a question, actually. What's the difference between an Aeolian scale and a natural minor scale? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, are you killing me? Are you, are you crazy? Like, you're killing me here. <laughs> This is my history, yeah. <laughs> and you're asking me a music bass geek question. So I answer him, I said, it's the same scale. Okay, great, all right, cool. He says, okay, good. And then, <laughs> then he asks me, asks me another question. He says, what do you and Miroslav Vitus have in common? Of course, Miroslav Vitus yeah, yeah. was the first bass player for Weather Report. My wife, by this time, is incensed. She's like, oh man, what is wrong with this guy? Is he crazy? Yes, he doesn't understand this is about your mother. Uh-huh. I said, all right, honey, okay, it's okay. So I answer him. I say, Zavano, that's our common bond. Mm-hmm. His answer is, oh, good. You can never be too careful on the internet. Oh, wow. He thought it was some sort of weird yeah, scam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just checking you out. And yeah. the reason he was checking me out is because we were already Facebook friends. Oh, wow. <laughs> So he offers to introduce me to the family. My family, he's my first cousin. His mother and my mother were sisters. So he introduces me, and one of the people he introduces me to is Dwayne Martin. Dwayne Martin is my brother. Mm -hmm. So he calls up Dwayne and he comes back to me. He wants to make the introduction. He said, well, man, I'm sorry to tell you Dwayne's not feeling it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know. He's just, this is just too much for him. So part of me was, again, the rejection, right? I'm feeling mm-hmm. like, oh, man, okay. But then the bigger part of me understood, this is a shock, mm-hmm. you know? Because all this time it was him and my mother. And now there's him and this other person claiming to be his brother. But I didn't really want anything to him from him except more about who I am and where I came from. So, he, so uh, my cousin says, well, you know, we're just going to give him time, give him a few months, and we've all agreed. I'm like, we all agreed. So he had talked to everybody. <laughs> like, we're just going to let this simmer for a minute. I said, okay. The very next day, I get a call 
Hey, Gerald, this is Dwayne. And uh, man, I just want to reach out to you. You know, we have a great mother, you know, a great family. Your mother was a mother, a woman of integrity. And I love you. And it's like, wow. It was the most beautiful conversation I probably have had as an adult with another man. Mm-hmm. And it was so welcoming. And then he told me a little bit about more about his thing and his journey. He, um, well, there are 4,000 colleges in the United States, give or take, right? Mm-hmm. And my brother grew up in Western Pennsylvania. We, grew, we went to the same college. Wow. We were probably on campus at the same time. Yeah. We both went to the University of Pennsylvania. I, at that time, was torn between um, being an engineer um, or going into the uh, social sciences, being a political scientist, or <laughs> or just becoming a musician. So you see which, what choice I made. Yes. Um, you made the right one. <laughs> well, I always feel like I, I probably would not have been a very good lawyer. I've been a mediocre lawyer. I don't know. But anyway, um, uh, maybe my heart's too big. I don't know what it is. Um, um, meanwhile, my daughter, this is another parenthetic story. My daughter's now in law school, so wish, wish to keep her in your prayers. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, 4,000 college, went to the same college. Uh, the, the, big, the reason I mentioned that also is that he almost dropped out because he was playing his guitar too much. Mm-hmm. He was a guitar player. Wow. So now, so I'm getting all these nuggets about, you know, how music was so important to, to my family, mm-hmm. the family that I never knew. And then, this is the kicker. My cousin Gary, he would send me random um, memories of being with, with, with my mom. And he said, I just remember this concert we went to in 1974. It was the Sea Weather Report. Rachel took, Aunt Rachel took us to Sea Weather Report. Weather Report was her favorite band. Whoa. I'm like, Weather Report was my favorite band. He said, wow. He said, Sweet Nighter, the Weather Report album, never left her turntable. Then the next memory was, oh, and we found Aunt Rachel's set list. Her set list. Yeah, there was a period where she had gone to New York to do gigs as a jazz singer and pianist. So yeah, so it's like, yeah, when you ask about that other instrument, like the piano, it's like, yeah, maybe in utero, there was something going on there. I have no idea, but yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that that story. That's (laughs) quite an incredible story, and um, I think illustrates how deep music runs. Yeah. In, in, in all of us. Yeah. Absolutely. It does. It does. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and kind of talk about some of the things you're up to now. Mm-hmm. Um, you are... Uh, forgive me, I, I don't remember your exact title within uh, Jazz Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, president. Right. President of You didn't see the presidential seal when you walked in. <laughs> <laughs> President of, of Jazz Philadelphia. And I've I first um got hip to that group um through 
uh, my buddy Alex Kaufman, mm-hmm. um, who organized a, a, an event um, that I, I really uh, enjoyed and in which you wanted to talk to, in an effort to um, improve the, the jazz ecosystem, I would say, as you, you might put, you wanted to meet with some of the younger musicians and hear what we had to say, what we liked about the Philly scene, things we thought we could improve, uh, which I really, really appreciated because I, I didn't realize it at the time, but afterward I thought, this is the first time anyone's ever really asked us. Mm. You know, we get, we get a lot of kind of top-down talking at us mm. and a lot of, oh, things used to be better. You hear that a lot. Um, but no, no one really asked us, like, what, what, what do we think about it? You know, mm-hmm. we've been, um, um, I, I really appreciated that. So could you talk a little bit about what Jazz Philadelphia does and mm-hmm. what your goals are? Absolutely. So Jazz Philadelphia is, is the only organization in Philadelphia that has the responsibility of really bringing people together for conversation, for problem solving, for collaboration. Um, when you talk about the ecosystem, it has a lot of components. It's made up of educators and students and the institutions that they work within. It's made up of musicians and singers and people who are independent artists or who are parts of bands and band leaders. And then it's made up of presenters, whether it's clubs or um, other big institutions like the Kemmel Center or, or like the Annenberg or other places like that. There are more bigger institutions, but people who are interested in curating the music and presenting the music. Then you have a, a very small funding community, community and, and potential sponsors of, of the music. And then you have people who are interested in the media. People who are either working in formal ways as writers or who are in, involved in uh, radio or social media who have, or public relations, folks who have decided to either push the push the careers of people further or push the work of institutions further uh, or to tell the broader story of what's happening with jazz. So we have all these stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, but Jazz Philadelphia is the organization that's taken on the responsibility of having meaningful conversations about how to improve various things. So the, the uh, meeting that we convened of the younger musicians that you were a part of, it was important for me to kind of understand first what are the problems that are being experienced before we can start talking about solutions. Uh, I think it was super, it was very revealing to me because one of the things that came out of that meeting was this desire for, for mentorship mm-hmm. and this understanding, getting back to our early conversation about learning, that uh, the learning doesn't stop when you, you know, walk across the stage and you have your degree. Mm-hmm from a, uh, a performing a performance degree or even a, a teaching degree, that then you still have to be able to go out and operate in this real world mm-hmm. of how do you deal with a band, how do you deal with a club owner, how do you, in the studio, or how do you get a record deal, or to what extent, or create your own independent work. 
uh, how do you tell stories about yourself in a press kit and so on. The learning never stops. Um, that particular group out of all the stakeholders, meaning the young musicians, mm -hmm. the early professionals or emerging artists, that is really my heart mm -hmm. because I can look back at when I was that age and, and I can recognize how mysterious it all is. And um, it's very easy to lose your way and it's very, um, it can be very, so confusing and frustrating that it's very easy to give up. You can probably, in your mind's eye, imagine the people that you came up with as aspiring musicians who are no longer doing it, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I, I worry about the people that we lose because there's no pathway. Mm -hmm. There were people who can't see what the pathway might be, you know, when they talk about the brain drain in, in, in environments, and they usually talk about it from a, a tech standpoint or a STEM standpoint, but I'm concerned about a creative brain drain mm -hmm. of people we lose who, would add, have, who could add so much to the arts if only they got the support and encouragement and knowledge that can only imagine, imagine the Herbie Hancocks mm -hmm. and the Charlie Parkers and the Christian McBrides that we're losing because there's just not an environment that's supportive of their work. So in jazz, in a, in a nutshell, that's what Jazz Philadelphia does. We're trying to, we, the first year of our formal existence, although the started off as an initiative in 2017, uh, the first year was trying to figure out what the basic structure would be. The second year was around reaching out to the community and having these um, very vibrant conversations and, and, and working in a system to call collective impact mm -hmm. where it's the opposite of the model that you described earlier, top down. Mm -hmm. This is all about bringing bottom up and figuring out where are the points where we can find agreement, where the problems are, and what are potential solutions, and then having the responsibility of Jazz Philadelphia to actually see implementing whatever those strategies are and seeing them through. That's what we do that's a little bit different than anything that maybe may have happened before in our city. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I hear, I can see it on your, on your, uh, my, whiteboard. my whiteboard over here, <laughs> the Summit 2019, mm -hmm. the Jazz Summit is, yes. is coming up. Uh, can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, one of the first things, that our major event, first major event that Jazz Philadelphia hosted was the 2018 uh, summit. And the idea was to bring people who n wouldn't nor normally get together under one roof, all these stakeholders that we described, and give them three things. Give them direct content, which means we would present panels on self-management, on um, the history of the music, on um, social media, on using your jazz education to, to further your, your career, all these interesting topics. And not just provide content, but also to provide connection, mm -hmm. to have people get together, whether it's informally, but maybe those informal connections could create more formal collaborations 
to kind of benefit everyone else. And also to have a sense of discovery, to discover that this, this community has an enormous, it's an enormous incubator for talent. Mm -hmm. That there's so many people who are doing great work in producing the music or presenting the music. Uh, people like um, Mark Chrisman down mm -hmm. at Ars Nova, who's always offering us the most interesting, thoughtful performances by, um, let's call them left of center artists who are mm -hmm. so innovative and interesting. Or whether it's, you know, the Kennel Center that offers um, scores of important performances throughout the year, or people like uh, uh, Homer Jackson, who's mm -hmm. done some really interesting projects where he honors the music of Sun Ra and Coltrane, but then gives opportunities for people of different generations to come together and play music. So there are all these people doing this important work on a presentation level, wonderful players who are, you know, just expanding the literature, both as players and as composers. So the idea was to have this place for two days where everyone would get together and acknowledge everyone's work and acknowledge what's happening in our city. So in 2019, we're having our second summit, which is happening uh, October 11th and 12th, mm -hmm. and it's hosted at the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts as well as University of the Arts. But we're including folks from Temple University and some of the other uh, performing arts organizations in the city. So again, it's, this is all under the spirit of coming together for potential collaborations and also to celebrate who we are and also to come up with a very solution-oriented um, approach to solving problems. You know, one of the early trepidations I had when I first joined Jazz Philadelphia as a board member was that I had seen attempts in the past where we had town hall meetings that were very problem-oriented. Mm -hmm. And as jazz musicians, we have a number of them, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. And you can talk on ad nauseum about you know mm -hmm. what the problems are, but unless someone takes on the onus of trying to solve them, then it's it's a wasted effort. Mm -hmm. So the one the central thing to know about jazz Philadelphia is that we are not problems oriented; we're solutions oriented, mm -hmm. and we want to surface what the challenges are but with an immediate eye towards okay, figuring out what we, can we work together to solve? What's within our capacity to solve? What's, um, what makes sense for us to dig into? And what are some of the things that are either outside of our circle of concern mm -hmm. or capacity? Um, so yeah, I'm excited about the, the summit. Uh, last year we had about 350 attendees over two days, 10 panel discussions, about 50 speakers. Uh, so this one will be, I think, even more uh, significant. We're also partnering this year with the Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation, who is having their Living Legacy Awards this year in Philadelphia. Uh, for this year, they've moved it from the Kennedy Center, where it has historically been, been, and they're having it at the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts. And this year's honoree is Charles Tolliver, mm -hmm. the great trumpeter. But we'll also, we're inviting some of the past honorees to come and be a part of the summit. So it'll be this interesting mix of some of our elder states persons who've made such uh, amazing contribution to jazz and some of the young practitioners, even uh, re really reaching out to students and their families to talk about the support that young, really young musicians need. Mm -hmm. And like uh, 
this this town has produced people like Christian McBride, mm -hmm. but you know, dare say, would there be a Christian without the support of his mom or someone like the Faulkners on that lady mm -hmm. you supported? Uh, you you featured Justin. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, would there have been a Justin without the support of a Carol Faulkner? Mm -hmm. We need those parents mm -hmm. who are saying, okay, we we entrust our kids to these great programs. We'll get them there. We'll follow up with them. We'll make sure they do their academic work, but we we love that they're involved in the music. So. Uh, at least one of our panels will be around that dynamic of how do we make sure that these these future um, practitioners of the music have so much to say that they can be shepherded from kids into adults mm -hmm. and get the support they need. So, yeah, that, in a nutshell, that's the maybe it's not such a nutshell, an <laughs> <laughs> uh, expansive way to talk about what we do both as an organization, but particularly with this two-day summit coming mm -hmm. up. Uh, I'll definitely be at the summit and um, I encourage anyone who might be listening to do so as well. They can go to jazzphiladelphia.org yes. and click on the summit and mm -hmm. you can register uh, up until, I don't know that when this will be, but registration up until September 10th is very, is free. Yeah. And then after that it's a very modest cost. Mm -hmm. But it'll be chock full of information and the idea to connect with your peers and, and even discover possible mentors and collaborations. Very cool. And I have always appre appreciated um, your solution-oriented mm. um, approach. Um, you know, as we all know, jazz musicians can tend to, to focus on, on the negative things sometimes. Um, it's a lot easier to do that, to be honest. But, um, you know, the hard work is in fixing those things and um, I'd like to thank thank you and also shout out to, to Heather Blakesley um, you've both been um, very supportive of uh, me doing this podcast I think you two were probably some of the first people I actually ever told about it because I have this thing about not telling anybody anything about what I'm working on until it's like done <laughs> I get it because if I start tell, telling people about it then like, I don't know, it tends to not happen. I but get it, I get it. Um, right when I was about to, to do it. And also, it, the idea for the podcast came about through several people um, and um, Jazz felt you and Heather being two of them, mm. just, just through conversation. The idea kind of crept in my brain, and then I had this other conversation with Tim Warfield, and mm. then I was like, oh, oh. there's like a couple, uh, uh, a couple conversations I had with several people in about the same time period, and I was just like, podcast, this makes sense. So, um, well, kudos to you for following through on your. Thanks, man. It's well, it's your vision. It's super fun. I can't. If it wasn't fun, I wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> um, uh, one more thing I wanted to, to, to talk about and mention um, is your series itself, Unscripted yep. uh, Jazz Series. Um, can you just talk about that real quick and sure. what's going on with that? Yeah, so the idea of the Unscripted Jazz Series is to bring in artists every week as uh, solo performers and we provide the, the backing band. I hate the term house band, but I guess that's what we are. Mm -hmm. uh, what we do is we bring in... Uh, some well-known artists, particularly in contemporary jazz, 
and um, it's been very, very successful. We've, we're coming up on four years mm -hmm. of presenting it. We've had over 250 nights of the music. And uh, for me personally as a musician, it's been awesome because um, just learning other people's music every week has been so much, mm -hmm. uh, so much fun. And it's kind of a great way to keep your, your, um, keep your tools sharp. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, it's great because I think it's one of the things I've, I've been haunted by is the, starting off with my involvement in the fusion era, mm -hmm. haunted by this definition of what is jazz and what is not jazz and what can be rightfully included in that space and what can be rightfully excluded. Um, and smooth jazz is one of those areas where it was basically a radio invention. Mm -hmm. And even though I've actually made good money from operating in that sphere, I've done radio in that genre. I did four years of, of presenting music as well, talking, uh, being a talking head, mm -hmm. uh, being a radio announcer in smooth jazz, which I learned so much from of the whole radio world, um, and have a lot of great friends who operate in that music. But what's frustrating for me is that I know that what these musicians have to offer and what their knowledge base is, is so much deeper than what people realize. Mm -hmm. So a quick story about how the Unscripted Jazz Series started and the meaning of it. My first, I worked with Grover Washington Jr. also for a number of years, of course a Philadelphia icon and just one of the most beautiful people you would have ever wanted to know. Just heart of gold, and really quite an, quite an amazing musician. Um, could hear anything and respond to it immediately. But what folks don't really know that is in, in spite of his commercial success, he loved um, the classics. He loved the standard jazz repertoire. And he prided himself on not being able to be stumped about a song, obscure song. Mm -hmm. So he, I don't know how many hundreds of songs he knew, but it had to be in the hundreds, and you could not stump him mm -hmm. with an obscure tune. Um, and the first performance I ever heard with him in a professional setting was playing Straight Ahead mm -hmm. and not contemporary jazz. Uh, he produced an album called Then and Now, which featured Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and some others. And his first kind of presentation of the music from that album was at the Blue Note. Mm -hmm. And so my first time playing with him was playing that music, playing Stella and playing Stolen Moments, and not playing Mr. Magic and, mm -hmm. and all, all those other hits. The takeaway from that is that there is a group of musicians that has a tremendous respect for the whole arc of jazz. And even though you may hear them playing a certain style that is quote-unquote commercial or smooth or funky or fusion-y, mm -hmm. uh, that there's another side to them. Uh, and that when we decided to create a series at South, which was conceived by the Bryan Brothers as a jazz club, just whatever that means, but like really honoring the music. We came to, the, my wife and I, who's my, my business partner, came with, to them with the idea of, you know, there are these jazz artists, smooth jazz or commercial or contemporary jazz artists, who have a, a bigger palette 
and we like to give them the chance to do that, mm -hmm. to explore that and showcase that. So they can play their hits, but we challenge them to play other things. So uh, we've had Kirk Whalen playing Joe Henderson tunes, mm -hmm. and Mary and Meadows playing uh, train tunes, and Walter Beasley playing um, Miles music, and, uh, and, and playing Cannonball stuff from the Cannonball Nancy Wilson record. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of the bigger vision is, mm -hmm. is, is presenting music. We have a strong fan and loyal fan base, and artists love playing there, but the bigger vision is to kind of break down these walls mm -hmm. between categories and understand that, you know, people have, if you're open, there's a lot that you can gain from just being a musician. With Grover, I mean, we had people sit in with that band, like Stan Getz mm. sat in with us once. That was to me like heaven. Yeah. Uh, and with Zominal, I mean, here's a person that wrote songs like Birdland, but when I played in his band, we would play um, You Come Sunday by Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, I, I have this kind of expansive idea of what the music can mean, but without um, foregoing what happened before, that we build on it. Mm -hmm. So with contemporary jazz musicians, especially the younger ones, I'm always asking them, what are you listening to? What else are you? What else are you doing? You know, you're. To me, it'll be so much richer if you build um, your contemporary art or your contemporary craft on something that's richer. Mm -hmm. Don't build it. It's almost like you're trying to build a building on sand. Build it on something really firm. Go back and listen to Train mm -hmm. and Bird and Miles. And Lee Morgan, don't base everything on what happened in 1995. Are you gonna? It's not only gonna hurt the music, but it's gonna hurt you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you'd only ask me about the club. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, man. The whole nature of this is 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 not linear. So well, I'm if, good at if, that. If, Thank if you. It fits very well. It's very well. Um, just to, just to close out today. Uh, where can people find you on online? Yeah, sure. I'm GeraldVeasley.com, Veasley with a V as in Victor, G-E-R-A-L-D-V-E-A-S-L-E-Y.com. These links to the base boot camp. Um, also, you please log in again once again to jazzphiladelphia.org. See how you can support us in our work to build this great community of jazz uh, presenters and artists and educators. And, of course, basebootcamp.com. Great. Gerald, thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks yeah. for talking. We could have easily talked a, lot, a whole <laughs> lot more, but uh, thank you very much. Oh, appreciate thank you, you for having me and having me continued success, man, with all your work. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on this show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to hear from you soon.